Go. Uh, this is Dennis Mundy. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, uh, Mr. Michael Mortali. Uh, he holds a master's degree from Goddard College and is the author of the book, Rewilding Meditations, Practices, and Skills for Awakening in Nature. I've been skimming through his book the last couple of days or going through his book. It's fascinating stuff. It's something I would like to personally do, and we will have him talk about it today. And I believe you're living in uh, western Massachusetts, out in the, near the Berkshires? That's right, right in the Berkshires. Great. I, I used to live in Cambridge. My daughter went to Smith College, so I spent a lot of time in Northampton in that area. And uh, I I lived in Amherst and have taught at Kripalu and lived in Stockbridge. So, uh, so we have some common ground. Right. We have common ground. Um, All right. Micah, fill us in for our listeners' sake. Uh, we'll, we want to talk about your new book, Rewilding, but tell us about your own spiritual background and what brought you to this work. All right. Sounds good. Well, thanks for having me on, uh, you guys. I really appreciate it. Um, so, yeah, my spiritual background, um, I guess, kind of started, you know, in, in nature. Um, when I was a little kid, my folks built a house in the woods um, we were off the grid before it was a thing. And uh, so some of my early memories as a child, you know, were um, heating with a wood stove and um, having kerosene lanterns for our illumination. And, um, you know, maybe the most technology I had at that point was uh, listening to Prairie Home Companion on the AM radio. Wow. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so as childhood went on and, and um, my folks split and uh, I, I moved away with my mom, uh, you know, there were some ups and downs and I, I just found myself going off into the woods um, as a way to, um, as a way to just like stay steady and stay connected. It was just a very intuitive thing I did as a kid. It was, I was kind of getting a, my medicine out there in the woods. I'd go for a lot of walks and um, growing up in, you know, uh, Connecticut, uh, you know, the old stone walls and the maple trees and the little rivers were uh, very soothing for me as a kid. Um, and then, uh, you know, by the time I got to college, I, I got very curious about uh, Eastern religions and, um, you know, early Christian mysticism and um, yoga and stuff like that. And um, so I started actually, you know, studying religion, um, but really more from a place of wanting to have a direct experience of the divine not a, really from um, so much from an academic motivation per se. So um, I dove into the world religions for many years and started to practice yoga and meditation. Um, and, uh, and then I actually, like I started to um, do yoga and have experiences. And I was finding that the, the yoga and the meditation were enhancing my experiences in the forests and exploring the lands around me. Um, so I, I dove into some different specific spiritual lineages, um, in my twenties and moved down to North Carolina and I was a, a wilderness counselor with at-risk teens for a number of years in the Smoky Mountains. Um, and, uh, that's when I took my first Kripalu yoga class down, uh, in Asheville. And I had a very powerful experience of healing in that class and, um, it kind of, uh, pulled me back up North and, uh, landed here at Kripalu about 15 years ago and uh, have been teaching and learning and working here ever since. And you, go ahead. Go ahead, Dennis. This is a fascinating subject matter for me because uh, 
Uh, Mike, I should mention, I was I was born in Jersey City, grew up in an urban area. Phil's from Brooklyn, so we have that in common. And for the uh, last many decades, I've been practicing meditation and really looking for spirituality by finding that most natural state within uh, and uh, and, uh, and enjoying that. But when, when, when I was looking through your book and listening to what, uh, reading about what you're doing and listening to you now, uh, I, I realized that one of my first spiritual experiences, although I didn't realize it was a spiritual experience at the time, when I was 10 years old, I went from living six miles from Times Square in New York, spending all my time in that area, to going to camp in Spofford, New Hampshire, on, on, on Lake Spofford. And, uh, and I remember, I distinctly remember the first night I was at camp, they put me in this cabin, and to get to the bathroom, I had to walk maybe 50 feet. Uh, and it was pitch black. I went outside and I looked in the sky and I was I was in shock. I never saw I You know, you I looked in the sky and I saw a few stars here and there. This was almost all stars and very little like darkness. And uh, it really had some deep effect on me. And I would say it was definitely a spiritual experience. Now, you could seem to combine the both where you're taking that inner dive that comes from meditation and but also using nature. And that which is most natural. I, I really don't know how to articulate it, uh, and and combining the two to uh, create a spiritual person. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Um, that's that's it. You know, I tried to, uh, you know, cr you know, we're creating. We created a program up here, the School of Mindful Outdoor Leadership, where, um, you know, we invite people into present moment awareness, um, but we do so, you know, out on the land. And, um, you know, we, we kind of exercise that muscle of awareness and present moment attention through um, short periods of um, internal meditation. But then we sort of reverse our awareness and we sort of open the senses back up and we allow them to rest in the elements. Um, you know, we as a species, human beings, you know, we didn't evolve, um, you know, in internal or indoor spaces. You know, our, our, our forebearers evolved in uh, relationship with the more than human world, with the elements. So our nervous systems really um, designed to op to function optimally, I think, when we're in contact with the living earth. And it's it's interesting that, you know, meditation and yoga communities, cultures and practices have um, have also kind of cut themselves off from nature. Like most yoga classes and meditation classes are offered indoors. Um, and I just got to a point a few years ago where, you know, maybe it was getting like a, a real adult job for a, a number of years and being at a desk where at the end of the day, I just couldn't bring myself to go and sit in a meditation or a yoga class anymore. Um, I couldn't be inside anymore. You know, I had to get out. Um, and so I've kind of, uh, been, you know, attempting to, to create, um, kind of not create something new really, but just sort of harken back to something old, um, you know, which is, you know, maybe these traditions that we all have rediscovered, you know, that they sort of, they, they were born, you know, in the forests and mountains and deserts of the ancient world. Um, you know, the Buddha attained enlightenment, like sitting outside under a tree, you know, so. Um, Micah, you refer or uh, to uh, something called the life force deficit. Um, I think we can intuitively understand what you mean, but 
perhaps you can explain it. Sure. Yeah. So that was just kind of a something I thought up. You know, um, just this idea that, well, you know, how alive do you feel um, sitting in an office environment for eight hours a day? Um, it's kind of it's a rhetorical question, right? But like the modern life that many people live when we're you know, the average American is in front of a screen 11 hours a day. Mm. You know, we spend 90% of our lives indoors. Um, and, you know, being inside, being in an office or, you know, um, an indoor space, the air gets kind of stale. We're under fluorescent lights. Um, there's actually less surface area. There's less texture. Um, you know, we're, we're surrounded by relatively flat spaces. Um, and most of what we're in contact with isn't like animate, um, you know, whereas if we step outside um, into a field or a forest or near the ocean um, or any outdoor environment that's been allowed to kind of be go wild, you know, we're surrounded by things that are flowing with prana, you know, that are alive. Um, and I think that when we're around life, we feel more alive. Mm. Um, and we've, we've, you know, we've over the years, begun to surround ourselves our, ourselves with things that are not alive in the same way that trees and um, flowing rivers um, are, are, are really teeming with life. Right. Yeah, so I think modern people today, like there's a sense of, uh, there's like a loss of life force. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's very important, it's been very important for me to, um, to get outside every day and to begin to purposefully, um, intentionally, um, you know, bring my body and my, my awareness into direct contact with the earth. Um, and I find that that's, um, in the same way, Phil, you talk about staring up at the stars. It's such a beautiful story, man. You know, like those kind of experiences of being alive, um, are what make life really worth living. I think. Uh, Mike, I, I, I'm connecting with every, with what you're saying and, 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 uh, Certainly, I've had enough experience that, uh, that, 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 that confirms what you're saying for me. Uh, but what do you say to people? M much of the world, if not most of the world, lives in urban areas. And, and most of those people uh, can't afford or don't have the means uh, to get out into nature. Maybe they're actually literally stuck in these urban areas where uh, 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 connecting with nature is much more difficult. What, what do you recommend to those folks? Well, you know... One of the things that I was clear about in the book and uh, that I feel really clear about is that you do not have to be in a wild place um, to gain the benefits of connection with the senses and the elements. Um, you know, so what I would recommend for folks is just go outside. You know, even if you're, um, if you're in an urban area and you don't have like a, an ancient forest right at your uh, disposal, you know, walk outside and you can feel the air on your skin. You can look up and see the wind moving through a tree or a dandelion growing out of the sidewalk. Um, you can go out and place your hands and your feet on the cold cement and feel the coldness and the density of that material. Um, you can go and find a small pocket park or an abandoned lot where there's been some trees that have gone wild and you can sit near a place like that 
and observe movement in those places, you will find that there is life there. Right. There I, I just wanted to follow up, Phil, and that is along these lines. I think it's also an important message for people that are urban planners that, you know, make a park. I, I love New York City, but it, I, it would be a lot harder to love if it wasn't for Central Park. Absolutely, absolutely and, right. And I want to say that even if you're in a major urban area, usually they're by a, a body of water. And I've spent time uh, in, in Jersey City, that area where as a kid, I can remember just looking at the Hudson River and really feeling I didn't realize that at the time, but I was enjoying that connection to something natural, to nature, even yeah. though it was teeming with people all around me. Yeah. Uh, that was nature, natural, and, and yeah. it was a life force, obviously, there. That's a great point. Totally agree. Totally agree. And I grew up in an apartment in Brooklyn where, you know, going to a local park and climbing a tree was a very big deal. And right. like Dennis, I didn't realize that, that you know, how, the importance of that at the time. But we would go to Prospect Park and go to the Botanical Gardens. And now I live in L.A. and in 10 minutes I can walk on the beach or take a walk in the woods. Um, and here's my question related to that. I've written about this. And, and recently I wrote that there are times I walk on the beach and it's sublime and I'm at one with nature and, and just in rapture over the, the beauty and the, the good fortune I have to be able to do that. But there are other times when I'm walking on the beach and I might as well be, you know, on a, a, a stationary bike in a, in a gym somewhere. Cause I'm not, my consciousness is not, of able to appreciate it. Can you address that? Can you address what people, and I'm sure you do in your book, what bring people need to bring to these experiences? Yeah, sure. It's a, that's such a great question. You know, my I think that what you're describing there, Phil, is the same thing that happens to anybody who's looking to establish a mindfulness practice. Right. Oh, like that'll happen if you're sitting on your cushion. It'll happen if you're on your yoga mat. It'll happen, you know, during any activity that you're attempting to bring your awareness back to what you're doing. So I see it as being exactly the same, and I kind of talk about it as nature meditation. So, um, you know, what I, what I suggest for folks to do is, um, you know, if you're going to go out and sort of like have a mindful rewilding experience or a mindful outdoor experience, or you just want to go out and really connect with nature, and with yourself, um, you know, it, it's always good to start and center yourself. So, you know, take a moment, close your eyes, connect with your breath, come into your body, and maybe set an intention to like really pay attention to one of your senses during the time that you're going to be out there. So it might be your sense of touch. You know, if you're walking barefoot on the beach, maybe like really, I'm going to pay attention to my feet in the sand. You know, and then as you walk and stay with your breath and every time you notice that your attention is somewhere else, you just come back to that sensation of your feet in the sand. Um, and then what I also would encourage folks to do is, is uh, part of what I'm trying to do with, through this work is help to address what Richard Louvre calls sensory anesthesia. Um, so he came up with the term nature deficit disorder. He talks about how people today are kind of losing their senses because we're in these um, really underwhelming indoor environments. Um, George, George Monboy calls it ecological boredom. 
You know, mm. we're in these places that are just boring ecologically. So um, what we're really trying to do is like help people come back to their senses. Because I think if we're more connected to our senses through the natural world, then we're going to wake up. I feel like, you know, a few years ago, my buddy and I jumped in the ocean in February in Rhode Island. Oh. I, had never, I had never done that before, you know, but we were like, all right, let's do it. So, you know, we went out and I jumped in the ocean. It was like 40 degrees or something in the water. And I thought I was going to die. My whole body, like it was, the, it was very much like a dying experience. It was so intense. And I, I wasn't sure if I could get out of the water once I was in. It was like I was going to be pulled out. But, you know, my, my energy kicked in. I jumped out of that water and wrapped up in a blanket. But I'll tell you something. That experience, in a way, woke me up at such a deep level. And it was, uh, you know, we talk about like throwing cold water in our face, but I think a lot of us today, we're too comfortable. You know, I don't think we get out of our comfort zones enough. I don't think we allow the seasons to really interact with our bodies and our senses. Um, and I think part of, and this is just me, but I think of, I feel like part of what's being called for today on our world is that human beings are being called to really listen to the earth and to what the earth is communicating through the weather, um, and through its expressions. And I think one way to do that is to get out there and to begin to consciously awaken our senses in direct conversation with the earth itself. Uh, it, it's interesting you say that. Uh, <clears throat> I'm in Iowa now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Phil's in, in, in California. But I went out this morning. It was 20 degrees. I was like freezing. <laughs> uh, but there was something very uh, that brought me very very much in the moment. There was something really nice about it as well. But what I wanted to do, though, is a, there's a quote in your book, uh, uh, Rewilding, that I want to read. It's a short quote, and I want you to comment on it because I think it is incredibly relevant to what's going on today. And the quote is, the old Lakota was wise. He knew that man's heart away from nature becomes cold and hard, and that lack of respect for green growing things soon leads to a lack of respect for people, too. Uh, if you could comment on that. Sure. Yeah, that was uh, Luther Standing Bear um, and uh, a, a Lakota leader um, from the last century. And I've always loved that quote. Um, I think that, you know, as, as a child of um, colonists on this country, um, you know, I'm, I'm very aware of the fact that, you know, I'm on land, you know, that was originally um, where I live, Stockbridge, Muncie, Mohican land. And um, many of the different indigenous tribes and nations that lived here on Turtle Island, um, you know, were, were hunter-gatherers. And so when they had to take the life of a deer or a bison or a bear to survive the winter, um, they did so knowing that um, that animal, that, that living being, um, which they didn't consider as an object, but as um, another of their brother or sister, that there was a great sacrifice involved in that. And they were connected and felt the pain of that loss, even though they knew that it was essential to their existence and survival. And I think that today with, um, you know, with the convenience of the modern food supply system, most folks are not connected to where their food comes from. Right. Um, and I think that we've lost a sense of reverence um, for the green growing things um, that, are, that really sustain all life on this planet. And I think what he, what Luther Standing Bear was saying there was that if we lose that sense of, um, if we lose that recognition of animacy, 
that um, plants are alive, that the earth is alive. Um, if when we lose that, then the earth becomes a commodity. And if the earth becomes a commodity, we become a commodity because we are the earth. Very good. Um, Micah, uh, in the, uh, in the book, uh, you talk about ancestral skills. Now yeah. my ancestral skills are uh, going to the supermarket and getting food, uh, maybe fixing a faucet or something. Uh, what do you mean by ancestral skills and how important are they for uh, people who want to reconnect with the, with the wilderness? Yeah. So um, I think that um, if, if, if your ancestry hadn't been great hunters, you wouldn't be here today. Right. Right? And nor would I or nor would any of so we all come from, you know, extremely skilled hunter-gatherers at some point in our deep ancestry. Um, and um, so when I talk about ancestral skills, I'm talking about, um, you know, essentially hunter-gatherer skills. Um, and I'm fascinated with these skills um, because um, I came to them um, with, a, with a deep practice and a love for mindfulness. And... Um, so I learned a lot of the skills that I know and I'm still refining from um, a great teacher whose name is Tom Brown Jr., who's got a school down in New Jersey called the Tracker School. In the Pine Barrens, right? Yeah, in the Pine Barrens. I, I know several people that have been there. It's not, they're really, I was going to ask, actually, if you were connected for that. But yeah. It, yeah. And, and you know, um, what Tom learned from uh, an Apache elder named Stalking Wolf, and what he learned from Stalking Wolf was that um, you know, if, if you're, if you're um, creating a wooden bow, if you're making your own bow and arrow, if you're making a wooden bowl to eat food with, if you're harvesting herbs, um, you, you, you must do so from a place of deep gratitude and thanksgiving to the living earth. And that every um, basket that you weave or every strand of uh, fiber that you make into cordage or every stone that you shape into a tool is a gift of the creator and should be, a, should be um, like a, a, a very high art form and that you should craft these things as if they were an offering to the great spirit. Um, and I just think that that's, um, you know, I think certainly, you know, in my recent ancestry, I felt like I've lost a little bit of a connection to that sense of craftsmanship and pride in work. And I think a lot of people growing up today, especially the younger generation, who are growing up on screens and very much not learning how to work with their hands, not learning how to work with wood or stone or, you know, earth or materials, but very much in abstract virtual spaces, um, that there's something really vital, a connection to the earth that's being severed even more. Um, so I I'm beginning to bring back some of these skills really as um, ways to help folks come back to earth, come and back to yeah, we right. might we might all need them if things continue to deteriorate. There's that as well. You know, there's there's certainly that. I I, I try not to you know come at it from from yeah. that perspective in my Get teaching, it. but um, you know I I think that knowing how to attend to your basic needs provides a sense of peace and confidence when you're um, on the land that is both um, really really useful and really nourishing as well. Right.
Okay, uh, I'm like, now going. I'm committing to now uh, finally getting around to growing some vegetables in my backyard. Yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have uh, two questions for you, Mike. Uh, uh, not necessarily related, but I, I want to get them both out. What well, one is? Um, uh, I would imagine that, uh, and I don't know if studies have been done in this area, but this uh, connection to nature uh, would be a very good tool for dealing with uh, psychological disorders like like depression, like anxiety. That would be one question. And, and then the second question, I'll ask you this directly. As you're uh, working or you're connecting to nature, how I don't know how to put it, uh, affected your, uh, how has it affected your uh, vision of an afterlife? So those two questions. Wow. Okay. So on the first connect, uh, first question about, you know, how nature connection um, can uh, support like mental health. Um, you know, there has been, there has been research on that and, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely being near green spaces um, has been shown to reduce, um, you know, the incidence of uh, mental illness. Um, I think there was a study in, I believe in Chicago last year that came out um, on that. It's been shown as well that, um, you know, access to green space can help with childhood resilience, um, among other things. So um, there's some good research out of Japan and South Korea on um, just like mood elevation, immune boosting, um, stress relief, and things of that nature. So, if um, I can, if I can just interject, I read recently that uh, studies in urban settings show that uh, if you're uh, if you have access to even just you know trees in the, in a neighborhood, the crime rate is lower. Mm, yeah, I've I've heard that too, Phil. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so there's good research on it, and I'll just say, you know, for me, it's been true. You know, I've I've certainly found that in in my own life, um, having access to, to to nature has made all the difference for me, um, and certainly through my uh, my relationships with students and in, in the school, um, you know, I'm, I'm seeing the incredible benefits it's having for them and their families and their communities. So. Um, it's, you know, it's, so there's that. And I think your second question in terms of how it's affected my, uh, my um, belief around the afterlife, that's a really interesting question. Um, and I guess my honest answer to that is that um, years ago, probably when I was a bit younger, um, and I was really um, deep into a lot of um, my, my really deep kind of yoga, meditation, spiritual practice, I think I had a lot of concepts and ideas about what the afterlife would be because of what teachers had told me. And I think over the years, as I've kind of gotten deeper into this work, I think my sense of certainty has gotten less and less and less. Um, I have more questions now, and, and I, have a, I think I'm holding a bigger sense of, of not knowing right. uh, than, I, than I used to. <laughs> I'm I'm with you on that one actually. I've definitely moved in that direction of uncertainty. We should say, you know, because our time is running out, we should uh, emphasize that your book uh, is filled with a lot of practical, uh, well, of, with practices. It's not just uh, a call to you know go out into the woods. You have a lot of practical advice for for making the most of the, your experiences in nature. And um, I'm now making a commitment to um, recommending your book in the book I'm working on because it's it's relevant in a certain section. So I appreciate uh, that very much. Um, in the foreword, uh, Stephen Cope, 
who we really have to get on the show, Dennis. Uh, okay. Stephen uh, says that uh, you, Mike, Micah, are uh, standing on the shoulders of Henry David Thoreau. And so my question for you is, when you're out in the wild, do you too bring your laundry home to your mother? <laughs> she, yeah, you know what? It's so funny. Uh, is, Stephen's a good friend of mine, and and I and I um, he's he's full of it. <laughs> I feel like that was uh, too much praise for me. But um, you know, it's so funny. Like we had a big snowstorm here like a week and a half ago, and I made a I made a big pile of snow and I carved out a hole in it. And I made a little Quincy, which is like a snow shelter, which is in the book. And, um, it was amazing. I went inside and, um, I had a candle in my sleeping bag and I actually slept in my Quincy. It was the most magical thing. Wow. And while I was in there, my wife came out with a plate of fresh baked cookies and some peppermint tea. And I thought about Thoreau because I know that <laughs> mom used to bring him cookies at yeah. Walden Pond. So uh, in that sense, yes, yeah, I'm not, Pe people I'm not forget wild. people forget that he could walk into the town of Concord and did so frequently. Yeah, <laughs> which uh, I think is a, I actually think that that's actually a great. Um, I think most folks, you know, are in more in that position. Yes, you know, we don't have to do extreme things to feel the nourishing reciprocal relationship with the life giving mother that is our planet. You know, we just have to get out there and open up the conversation. Great. Again, uh, the book, uh, Rewilding Meditation Practices and Skills for Awakening in Nature. Uh, great subject matter. I mean, it's really excited me about pursuing this area more. Uh, Phil, any final questions that you have? No, I would ask Micah for one last uh, final tip for our listeners and uh uh, tell people to not only look at Micah's website and his book, but to the Kripalu website where Micah uh, runs uh, programs. Micah, any last minute, uh, last tips for our listeners? Um, you know, I would just say, uh, just try to get outside a little bit every day and breathe. And uh, just, you know, there's so much to be grateful for on this beautiful planet. It's, it's still the only known livable planet that we know of. And um, every day I'm grateful for it. It's just a beautiful place to live. So thanks so much for having me on, you guys. It's Thank a you. pleasure. Thank you. Be well.